Film Society of Lincoln Center, you are listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's February 24th, 2016. I'm Michael Odmark, one of the show's producers. Today, we're sharing a conversation with filmmaker Matthew Heineman, whose recent film, Cartel Land, will be competing for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards this weekend. The film offers a unique exploration of the ongoing drug war along the U.S.-Mexican border, boldly following two vigilante leaders into increasingly dangerous terrain. The result is a ground-level look at people on all sides of the fight against the powerful drug cartels. On the occasion of Cartel Land's theatrical release over the summer, Heinemann joined us for one of our free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. The conversation was moderated by award-winning documentary cinematographer Kirsten Johnson, whose new film Camera Person, one of her first as director, will be the closing night selection at the 45th edition of New Directors New Films in March. Let's go now to their conversation. Hey there, this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Close-Up. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to get new episodes delivered to you every week. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help us reach more cinephiles like you all around the world and help us make this podcast even better. Thanks again for listening, and now back to our show. Um, There were actually two films at Sundance this year where I, my jaw dropped and then I thought that I would pick it back up again at some point during the movie and I never did. I just left it on the chair beside me. Uh, So it was this film and also the film Meru which demonstrated really extraordinary um, bravery in the making and shooting of the film and So I feel like this is a really special conversation with an intimate group of people and we're going to talk about the filmmaking tonight, but you should know that this film is going to be opening this weekend in New York and also in LA. Uh, Just this exclusively in New York this weekend and then expanding across the country next weekend. so. So are there any of you who've seen the film? Right on. Okay, <laughs> and so so we will have no spoilers in this conversation, but I think uh, my uh, confidence is that you will really want to see the film. Uh, one, after this trailer, I think you want to see the film, but after this conversation, um, because what happens in this film uh, is a very rare thing, and what you see from the trailer immediately is how gripping it is. Now, with films, I think there's, there's several different things going on. There's a reality in a place for the people who live it, and then there's the reality of the filmmaker who comes into that place and attempts to make a film out of what they're seeing, and then there's what happens after when the film goes out into the world, into a reality that's a fraught reality, um, and how the people are changed by the film um, in the aftermath. So in some ways, when we see a film as uh, viewers, we think this is the reality in this moment. And in fact, things move and shift. Um, And that's one of the challenges of being a filmmaker on the ground. Um, And Matthew had a really remarkable relationship with one of the primary characters in this film, whose name is El Doctor. Um, And I think what we'll do is um, roll a clip in just a minute with El Doctor, but Matthew, why don't you just tell me uh, 
how you first met El Doctor and who you thought he was. So, you know, as you saw from the trailer, uh, this is a story about vigilantism. Uh, citizens who have taken the law into their own hands on both sides of the border. And I first started filming in Arizona. Originally, the film was just about Arizona. And then my father sent me an article uh, about the auto defensus, the, the citizens who were rising up against the Knights Templar cartel. And how many months did it take your mother to forgive him for that? Several, several months. Uh, so right when I read that article, I knew I wanted to create this sort of parallel narrative. And I got on the phone with him the next uh, night, I think, uh, talked to him, told him, you know, I want to come down and document your story, document the story of the auto defensus. And he said, come on down. And two weeks later, we were down in, in Mexico filming. And the film evolved in a way that I never could have imagined or predicted. You know, at first, it seemed like it was this very simple hero-villain story of guys in you know, white shirts fighting against guys in black hats. And over time, the lines between good and evil uh, became quite blurry. And so, you know, really ended up with this story that I never could have imagined or, pr or predicted. I mean, I think one of the things that, that uh, is important to imagine is what the filmmaker is experiencing uh, when he or she drops into a place. You know, here you are, you arrived in Michoacan, and I believe you don't speak Spanish. Un poquito. <laughs> he learned, he learned. And, and one of the things that you had done right away was to secure a relationship with a journalist from Mexico City who had been covering the story in the region for quite some time. Yeah, so after I talked to the doctor, it was like, wow, this is an amazing story. And then, then you know, the next question is, how the hell do I get down there? And so I, I reached out to some journalists here in New York, and they connected to me, to this guy, Miles uh, Esty, who's a Mexico City-based journalist and started talking to him about the safety of filming in Michoacan, filming these, uh, this vigilante group. And, you know, if you, if you go to, like, the State Department website, it says, like, you know, no one can travel to Michoacan, no government employees can travel to Michoacan, you know, you're, you'll be kidnapped and killed immediately, like, do not go there. And so, obviously, I wanted to talk to local people, and so through Miles, um, we got in touch with a local fixer who's from Michoacan, and during those two weeks before we went down there, we really s sort of assessed the risk, you know, talked through the story, talked through, you know, what my goals were. And there's no way I could have made this film without Miles or um, Daniel Fernandez, who's our local fixer uh, down in Mitchell Khan. Yeah, I think it's really important that you mention Daniel, um, because I think one of the things that we always think about of, as filmmakers is um, what happens to the people who work with us who cannot leave or do not want to leave the place where we film. Um, because it's one of the challenges as you go along trying to understand what the narrative is that you're following. You're making choices and alliances in the middle of what you have characterized as a war in this situation. So you're trying to negotiate that territory um, at the same time knowing that some of the people that you're working with live there and that choices you make will impact their lives. Um, so that collaboration between um, you and Daniel was a critical one every step of the way. Yeah, and you know, as you said, um, there's many phases, obviously, to filmmaking. There's 
production, post-production, distribution, marketing. And each one of those phases, especially with a film like this, has its own risks. Um, you know, obviously be on the ground um, and the, some of the situations you saw in the trailer had, had their own risks. Um, creating relationships and forging relationships with people on both sides of this issue, you know, in the cartel and the auto defenses has its own risk, especially for, for Daniel and people on the ground there. Um, in the editorial process, making decisions on who's on camera, what we can show, how much we can show, you know, that is inherent risks um, as well. And then obviously now that the film is being distributed, it's actually also being released in, in Mexico uh, this weekend, so that has its own risks, so. Um, Jenny, we're gonna roll the clip of the doctor in just a moment, but I think one of the other things that's quite uh, remarkable about the film is even as timely as it is in showing this current conflict, it does feel like uh, almost novelistic in the way you see the complexity of some of the people in this film. So um, El Doctor is one of the primary uh, focuses of this film, and I think we get into the complexity of human nature in a very powerful way um, in his portrayal. Somebody, when we were sort of pitching, trying to raise money, somebody said to me, um, uh, we cut a look together a little teaser and they said, is this journalism or is this Shakespeare? And I was like, oh, do you have to choose between the two? Clearly he has not chosen. Okay, so Jenny, let's roll the El Doctor clip. So one of the things the film does really effectively is to set up the context of uh, violence that people are uh, forced to live in because of the cartel trafficking. And so you see this emergence of a group of people who are trying to push back against the cartels. And El Doctor is one of the leaders in this movement and they're moving from town to town. Um, and there's just a couple of incredible initial scenes where you see both children and a remarkable old lady who I can't get out of my mind, who, who their lives have been so changed uh, that they are willing to be supportive um, of these new groups coming in. Um, I'm curious for you to talk a little bit about um, how long you were there and that the momentum, feeling some sort of a momentum in a place where people had felt completely powerless and there was shift that was starting to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think the minute I stepped foot in Mexico, um, I'd been to Mexico before um, on a vacation. I'd never been uh, in a situation like this before. I've never been in a war zone before. I've never been shot at before. I've never been in anything at all like this before. And so I think the overwhelming feeling that I felt when I first sort of landed in Michoacan was the suffering the suffering of everyday people living in a lawless world, living in a world where government, government institutions have failed. Uh, the very institutions that are there to protect us either aren't there or they are there uh, often in collusion with the cartel. And that's a really, really scary world to live in. Um, a young woman that we spent time with uh, who is the one screaming uh, at the army in the trailer, you may or may not remember a beautiful young woman, her whole family was murdered by the cartel. And her father, who's on, you know, on a respirator, he's 70 years old, um, her, his, her mother, and two of her brothers. And you know, she couldn't talk about it. The very institutions that you're supposed to go to when something like that happens, the police. She was too scared to go to the police. She's too scared that the police are working with the cartels. So that's 
where this movement was born out of. It was born out of a, a desire to bring sort of order to chaos, a desire to bring basic safety and security into a lawless world, you know, where these people were not protected by their government. And so um, that's originally what I thought the film was. I thought it was a story of everyday people, farmers, shopkeepers, lawyers, doctors, rising up to fight against uh, the cartel. And that's the first act of the film. And I, I would say, though, that may have been your experience while making it, but I think very quickly the film complicates the idea of vigilantism and, and its excesses uh, with the comparison that you set up between Naylor, who's on the border um, of the United States and Mexico, and with what's happening in Michigan. So that felt like a very clear directorial choice that he sets up this question of uh, the sort of nobility of the place that this vigilantism is springing from in Michoacan, but a question mark around what vigilantism is. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that I constantly was sort of thinking about and wondering about was, what would I do? What would you do? What would I do if, if my sister was raped or my brother was hanging from a bridge? Would I take up arms? Would I fight violence with violence? Is that just? Is that right? Is, is vigilantism sustainable? These are, these are sort of things that we're constantly, we spent hours and hours discussing, debating, thinking about, um, you know, there's a lot of driving sort of back and forth between different places in Michoacan. You know, we spent probably 90% of those drives talking about, you know, who are these guys? What's really happening? What's really going on here? Um, and, you know, is this right? Where is this going to go? How is this going to end up? Um. I'm really curious, since you hadn't filmed uh, in war zones before, um, for you to talk to us a little bit about how spending so much time with people with guns changed your thinking. And before we do that, I, I, I want to, not about vigilantism, but just like what is it to actually physically experience living with guns all the time? Um, we're going to roll the second clip, um, which includes the, the clip of, with the, the car scene, um, which is, includes the only moment that I think I laughed in this film at Sundance, because there's a moment that you'll see where there's a gun battle going on, and he changes the f-stop of the camera. It's overexposed, and then he shifts it, and it's in the middle of a gun battle. You guys will see it. And that I really related to as a camera person, because it's often what you're doing as you're filming, the way that you maintain your... Uh, sanity and also your capacity to function is that you focus on the things you need to do with your camera. And so there's a great moment where he, he opens, he closes down the lens uh, to adjust the, uh, the light that you'll see in the middle of this gun battle. But let's go ahead and roll that clip. You saw it there, that last moment. So, so how, did it, how did it change for you to spend that much time physically around people using guns? I've never used guns before. Uh, this, I shot a gun for the first time on this film, um, just you know, in, into a hillside, um, obviously. <laughs> um, just on Let's record, make that clear. on record, yeah, I, didn't, I did not shoot it at anybody. Um, it was frightening being around guns. I mean, that, it was frightening filming scenes like that. I mean, I, I, I want to give a little context. This this clip in particular is is later on in the film when. As I said earlier, the lines between good and evil were, were becoming uh, you know, quite blurry. And 
you really, really didn't know when you're in the back of the car with those guys who you're with. You didn't know if you were the good guys or the bad guys. And that's a really scary environment to film in. Um, I think over, after being there for almost nine months, um, that's what really allowed us to get the access that we were able to get. Is that, you know, there's a lot of people that down there covering the story, um, but they were there for one day, two days, three days. And that's sort of also a story about journalism today is, you know, there's so little money in paying for investigative journalism and sending correspondence and in traditional news organizations down there. And so I had the luxury as a, and uh, the, the fortune of an independent filmmaker to be able to spend a lot of time there. I spent almost nine months, one to two weeks of every month down there, and I was able to forge relationships, you know, develop storylines, and get into corners that, um, you know, other people weren't able to get into. This scene in particular, you know, I also developed sort of a body language and an understanding of how everything went down. This scene would have never happened if I just, like, arrived and said, hey, Auto Defenses, can I film you? I'd, I'd spent, this is about eight months in, and they were hanging out at this base. Um, two of their, uh, the Auto Defenses had been uh, killed. They'd been assassinated on mopeds just driving through town. And so the tension was extreme. Uh, the anger was extreme. Um, it, it, was, it was, you know, really frightening, and, and everyone was, you know, very much on edge. Um, but there was a bit of a lull. We were kind of just like sitting at the at their headquarters, uh, a place where they actually, you know, tortured and interrogated people. Um, and at one moment, the energy just starts to pick up, and they all start grabbing their guns and they put their bulletproof vests on. And you know, I said, you know, where are you guys going? And 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 they said, oh, we're going to get uh, some Starbucks. And you know, eight months ago, I would have said, okay, you know. I'll, I'll wait for you guys here and enjoy your Starbucks. Yeah. But at that point, I was like, well, you know, I'd love to get some coffee too. So I put my vest on and we jumped in the car and that's what happened. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, speaking about you not knowing Spanish, I, having filmed in many countries where I don't speak the language, I think, you know, there are upsides and downsides to it. And, you know, you must work with a person, a local person who speaks the language who can help you interpret what's going on, sort of every chance you have a, t you know, a moment to sit down and go through things. But when you're actually filming in some of these um, very physical situations, sometimes it's very useful to only be watching body language uh, because you are getting clues that you do not get through people's spoken language. And I think I saw a lot of evidence of that in this film from you. T totally. I mean, I, I think so many of the scenes I, I very much benefited from sort of directing and shooting from a point of view of, of just body language, of emotion, you know, moving the camera in ways in which I didn't fully understand what was being said, but I could understand by the, you know, their faces and their eyes. Um, this scene actually led to this witch hunt after they get shot at, they jump back in the car and they go through this on this witch hunt to look for who's shooting at them. Uh, and they'd heard that there was this white Jetta that was shooting at them. And they find another white car that happened to be a, a Cherokee, not a Jetta. And they basically grab this guy away from his family. His, you see a bit of it in the trailer. His daughter's crying. It's a really devastating, scene. devastating, horrific scene to witness. Um, you know, as a human being. That, you know, that's part of 
the things that we deal with as, as shooters and filmmakers, as a human being, you want to just grab them and stop this from happening. Um, but I'm not there to police, you know? I'm not there to change what's happening. I'm there to document what's happening. And so what this led to was this guy being thrown in the back of the car and being interrogated at gunpoint with this guy sort of almost sadistically running a gun up and down his head trying to get information out of him um, with me sort of jammed in the middle seat, you know, a foot away from him. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting. You say I'm just there to document what's happening. I think that we all know that that's a, it's a complicated act, documenting. And one of the things you were talking about earlier, these sort of upsides and downsides. There's upsides and downsides to being an outsider making a film about a place, upsides and downsides to being a person who speaks the language, who can only read body language. And you know, one of the things you said about staying longer, I've found, especially in small places where everyone knows each other, the longer you stay, the more complicated it gets. Uh, because of the network of relationships that you don't understand initially, and then you start to understand, and everyone knows who you're keeping company with. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, how you managed to stay so long? I think that's one of the remarkable things about this film, and why it, it, it's, a, it's a rare opportunity to see something over a long term, because I think this is a very hard thing to do to stay. Yeah, and I mean, to be completely honest, I mean, two converse things were happening. One, as I stayed longer, things were getting more dangerous. And as I stayed longer, I was getting more comfortable, which were, was not a good, you know... Perfect combination. Not a good combination yeah. to be happening. And, but I also became almost obsessed with trying to understand what was happening, become obsessed with who these guys were and what, you know, where this was going and, 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 and what this movement was really about. And... Um, I think one of the things that I did very early on that really benefited me was the minute I stepped foot down there, I was saying, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to document history. And I de we developed relationships with people on all different sides of this. And all these different people that we developed relationships with, that we shot with, that we spent time with, that we slept with, uh, not like slept next to. Um, <laughs> he didn't shoot anyone or sleep with anyone in the making yes. of this film. <laughs> I can just see the, like the news art, the news article. Yeah, exactly. Heinemann sleeps and shoots with the auto defenses. I distracted myself. Suddenly, his mind went into a, yes. another place. Um, that I was able to sort of. Oh, so I initially developed these relationships with, um, with people on all different sides, and then ultimately, as the movement begins to get more complicated and begins to fracture without giving too much away. I had already developed relationships with people on all different sides, and yes, I mean, they, they would know. I mean, it's a small world, and they're all connected by radio, by t Twitter, by Facebook, by everything. Mm. Um, they, you know, I was known as an El Gringo. I mean, everyone knew where we were at all times. Yeah. You know, they could be like, oh, I heard you were filming with, with Dr. Morellas today. What was that like, you know? Yeah. And it was like, and I was with the other side, and so it would be like, you know, and I think the key in terms of safety was, was being completely upfront with everyone, mm. not hiding what we were doing, not hiding that we were getting different perspectives. Mm. Mm. Um, I think otherwise it would have become you know, far more dangerous and scary. I think being honest and truthful in life and in, mm. <laughs> in filmmaking is, is an important thing to be doing. Was there ever a moment where you felt like you were being asked something that you really didn't want to tell and that you were you were in a position where it was incredibly difficult to be that 
open? There are some moments in the end of the film yeah. that I would prefer not to talk about. Okay, fair um, enough. Well, but, one more reason to see the film. But I, yeah. I, you know, I think I, I do want to say one thing though. I think despite um, all of these like adrenaline moments or bang bang moments yeah. that we're talking about, I think for me the scariest moment was a moment that I spent with a young woman uh, who was kidnapped by the cartel with her husband, uh, and whose husband was chopped up to pieces and burned to death in front of her. And to sit in this room and to look at this woman and to see her eyes, um, and almost as if they, like her whole soul had been sucked out of her, and to hear her describe these horrors and think that we're the same species of human beings that would do that to other people, that stuck with me far more than any other uh, moment that I filmed. It's interesting. I had sort of blocked out that moment of the film. It's a very disturbing moment, um, and I think what you're saying is right, that it, it, it lands in a whole different way. I mean, I don't feel, I didn't feel in watching this film that uh, it's not a gratuitous film. Uh, it's, it's looking, uh, trying to understand what is going on and what can shift and what is it going to take to create a shift. Um, and what happens when people get terrorized and terrorized and the presence of weapons is such that no one has the chance to really talk to each other anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of what we see in this film is, is, is both, in, you know, human dynamics. You know, we see the doctor evolve and change as a leader um, as this movement goes on. We see group dynamics. We see this group evolve and change as the film goes on. And I think that's part of what happens when armed groups rise up um, and we've seen it you know, throughout history and all across the world today, is, is you can't control necessarily all the, all the people within your ranks. Mm-hmm. At one point, the auto defenses were 20,000. 20,000 men with assault rifles walking through Pueblos uh, you know, in Mexico, providing basic safety and security that the government wasn't providing. And how can you possibly keep track or tabs on 20,000 people? Um, despite perhaps noble intentions, despite despite rising up for noble reasons. Um, so to me, the group dynamic were, you know, was fascinating to me as much as the interpersonal dynamic of, the, of our characters that we were following. Um, I'd like to, we're gonna show a final uh, clip of um, the meth cookers, um, which is one more instance in the film where you actually see something that you know exists, but you've never seen before, um, which I think is, is, makes this film essential viewing. Um, you know, my response to watching that is such a strange one in a certain way. I, I, it makes me uh, want to say to you that I feel like this film is made with, uh, it's filmed with love. Uh, it's filmed with a great compassion, and um, it's also filmed with a great love of cinema. Um, it's an incredibly cinematic movie, and I'm just curious about um, the way you think about the way that you film people and situations and the way you film that chemical reaction going out into the darkness. Well, I'll, I'll start there and then I'll back up for a sec, but I think I think I've approached filmmaking the same way I approach life, and I think hopefully often, hopefully those things are often 
together um, is without judgment, you know, without judging who these people are. Um, I am, we are so fortunate to be able to travel the world, as he says, and, and spend time with, with, with other people. And, you know, I think to go in with an agenda when you make a film to, you know, say these people are, you know, in this box and those people are in that box, not only inhibits the creative process, inhibits the story from evolving and changing, um, but I think, frankly, does a disservice to the world. And, I, you know, I think if I went into this film closed-minded and saying, you know, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys, or, you know, oh, I, I got the story, I know who these guys are, you know, none of the things would have evolved that evolved. Mm -hmm. And I think approaching subjects and approach, approaching stories open-mindedly um, is at least how I like to make films. Um, and this story, this scene in particular, was something that was incredibly important to me. Meth was the cash cow of the cartel. It was their lifeblood. Uh, and the minute I stepped foot in Mexico, I wanted to film down there. Um, and so with Danny and with Miles and with everybody, every single shoot, we'd sort of talk to people and say, hey, you know, do you, do you know somebody, know somebody, know somebody who can get us into a lab? And no, 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 no. You know, months and months and months of, of this. And then finally, like halfway through shooting, we, we met somebody. Um, who's actually a character in the film, who, who said he could get us into a lab. And he's like, you know, tomorrow or the next day. And still, it never happened. And so I sort of, despite doggedly pursuing this, pursuing this I eventually kind of gave up. And because we'd spent hours and hours and hours building these relationships, trying to make this happen. And then finally, it was on our second to last shoot, one of those days when nothing was going right, our car broke down in the Sierra up in the mountains, and uh, literally it was like, you know, nothing happened that day. I, you know, I was just like, ah, what are we doing here, you know? Mm -hmm. And we get this call saying, be in this town square at 6 p.m. and you're in. And I just couldn't believe it. And so we had established ground rules with the person who gave us access that we would, I did not want to be bagged or thrown in a trunk. And- um, Who does? What? <laughs> who does? <laughs> And in exchange for that, um, they would have their faces covered. And I thought that was a pretty fair exchange. Totally um, fair. <laughs> and so we went to the town square. A group of masked men uh, drove us through towns and smaller towns and fields. And then eventually stopped in the middle of a field and said, we're here to provide protection. Another car starts driving at us and leads us into the forest. And... I sort of, I dreamed of shooting this scene for, for months and months and months. I've never seen Breaking Bad. Uh, who, who here has seen Breaking Bad? So a lot, most people have seen Breaking Bad besides me. Um, and I'd, I'd always sort of dreamed of this scene being in this like halogen lit trailer, you know, just from the images that I, you know, read about and researched. Um, and I get out there and we're in the middle of a forest and I don't shoot with lights. And so I was like, I literally fought for this for nine months, and I'm here with these guys cooking meth, and I can't see anything because it's pitch black, and my camera wasn't picking up anything. And so the head chef, the guy who I interviewed there, starts showing me around, and he's like, you know, this is what's happening, you know, and and he was showing me with a little flashlight, and it's with that flashlight that we lit the, that I lit the scene, um, and thank you to the head chef for allowing us to get that. Yeah, no, and this is the kind of thing that happens when you make films. You know, somehow you get into this very special, magical place where what you imagined 
does come true, but in this completely different form. And sometimes you're in this place where it 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 becomes you know if you if you had could make it happen, you would have made it happen lit by fluorescent lights. But instead, it's lit in this really magical way that is what is real about the place. And so that, you know, the smoke becomes this metaphor because of what's real in the place. And that's what I always find just thrilling about making documentaries is that you often unexpectedly slip into some kind of magic like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the key, a mentor of mine in the film world once said that, you know, if you uh, end up with the story that you started with, then you weren't listening along the way. And I think that's, you know, not only good advice for life, but for filmmaking as well. And both on a macro level, especially like as the, as the story develops, but on a micro level, like mm. not being pissed that I didn't have a light, not being pissed that I wasn't in a trailer, but being open to like, shit, how do I make this happen? You know, how, what do we do to make this scene um, play out? And then ultimately, I knew when I was shooting this that I wanted to start the film this way. Um, but at the end of the film, I didn't realize that there's a very important reveal that happened and it comes back at the end of the film, so. Yeah, um, I started to look at the AOL uh, the, uh, interview you had, but uh, I was rushing over here. Um, I wanna go back to what you said uh, about the, um, what do you do in that moment? You know, like, uh, what would you do if somebody kills your family or whatever? I, I think, no one has the answer to that question because you have to be in tune in that moment. You have to be a part of that emotional journey. And you either succumb to what's going on or like the guys with the white t-shirts, for someone to be as invested in something you should be invested in, for them to shed light in what's possible, I think that's when you make the transition. And in that moment, you don't, you don't make a decision. The decision has already been made for you. So like when somebody says, oh, they do this to my family, I would just go out and start shooting. I think you're an idiot. It doesn't happen that way, especially in that type of environment where, you know, it's, it's crazy. But I, I digress. The question I have for you is this. Out of all the scenes you filmed, was the uh, meth scene the most intense, the, the whole process, from, from going to meet them and praying that, this wasn't the, uh, you know, it's something good. I mean, you, you, you were in, in the abyss of what I would call, you know, almost a point of no return because anything could happen. These guys are not, by law, you know, um, responsible for whatever, anything happens to you. So, um, just your, your mindset. Uh, it actually, it was absolutely frightening driving in there. Um, it was absolutely frightening when these people who I thought were leading us in stopped and then said another car is going to lead us in. You know, I, I, there's numerous things that happened where like the plan changed that were you know made it even scarier. Once I actually met the guys, um, they're just guy. They're you know they view themselves as farmers. They just happen to be cultivating a crop that you know makes its way northward that ruins lives here but for them they're just getting by and they're you know cooking these drugs and so i actually didn't feel that nervous um being around them as compared to other situations i felt far more nervous you know in in you know in, in other situations in, in gunfights or other places where I, you didn't really know 
who you're writing. I, I spent time with them, and, and, and I, you know, the first thing the guy said is, hey, remind me who, who told you that you could come here? And I said his name, mm-hmm. and, or, or her name. Um, and I said, oh, you're cool, you know? And then from then on, it was like, I was just, I was just there, you know, with them. The, there's a whole story, I don't want to usurp the rest of this Q&A, but there's a whole story of the process of cooking meth happens over a few days. I really, really wanted to show that process uh, visually, uh, which is what you see here. Right. Um, you know, you can't shoot it all one night because each night they do something different. And so um, we made a date to come back the next night. And he said, you know, I'd love to show you the different parts of the process. The next night we arrive at the location, 9 p.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m., nothing. He texts us the next morning and said, you know, I'm really sorry something came up. Tonight, 9 p.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m., nothing. And, he, you know, we're sitting in a pretty sort of sketchy part of wherever we were. Right. And third night, same thing. And then so I was like, shit, you know, what do we do? And you know, I really want to go back. And so it was our last day in Michoacan before coming back to the States. And I turned to Daniel and we call Miles and we, as a group, sort of talk about it. And I say, you know, I think we can, we can drive in there. You know, they know us. They know who we are. Mm. Um, we've been there before. Mm. If we go in, the, if we go in the daytime, uh, if we go in the daytime, you know, it's a lot safer. And so we drove in, and we were kind of like guessing. We're like, we think we turn this way. We think we turn this way. We think, and then, and then eventually, we started to smell the meth, and so we knew we were close. Uh. And I'll try to speed up the story. Basically, a car starts driving at us, and they. Um, slowly pull up next to us, roll down their tinted window, and they say, you know, what are you guys doing here? And look at them and say, you know, we're the same guys we were here the other night, you know, you know, we're here to document a film. And, mm-hmm. and they said, I think you're going the wrong way. And so they wow. told us to go to the highway. And so we, they, said, they said, stay here. Another car drove up, same thing. What are you guys doing here? You know why we're here. That happened three times. And they told us to go to this pool hall. And it was in this pool hall that was what I learned to be the place where all the meth cookers hung out. Mm-hmm. They were playing pool, they are hanging out, they are smoking, they are doing their thing. This is an amazingly cinematic scene. And it was killing me as a filmmaker because all I wanted to do was film this. Wow. But I knew that if I filmed it, it would not only be dangerous, but it would inhibit my ability to get back into the meth lab, which is the whole reason we were there. And, but it happened while I was there, I met a guy who spoke English. And, I, got, and, I, and I, met, I met another guy. I met several different people that I spoke to. And um, in talking to this person, I, get a lot, I got a lot of information about who, who these guys were and what was really happening. And all I wanted to do was film this guy and get this information on camera. Um, but I knew it would, it would not allow us to get in uh, to the meth lab. Anyway, so I didn't film. We went back in, got the shots we needed, mm-hmm. and got out of there. And... Um, it was this information that I gleaned in the pool hall that ends up being the absolute most important part of the movie and the reveal and the end of the film. Nice. Um, so, again, one of those things, a, a happy uh, so, accident. So, so, so a, a, a detour puts you back on track? You know, I think it goes back to the being open to the story changing. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great description of who this person is and how he was able to make this film. 
of sort of how the desire pulls you forward, but the instincts and the intellect around what to do in what moment, whether to film, to not film. Those are constantly questions that you alone can answer, um, and you've clearly got some great instincts. Um, anybody else have a question? Uh, hi. Uh, my question is twofold. One is, uh, as the, uh, were the um, Mexican authorities anyhow involved or try to interfere in your um, project? And also, why would the cartel and the um, auto-defense people would, uh, would want you to do this? The government was very well aware of what was happening, what we were doing. Uh, there's one moment in which they asked me to have lunch with them, uh, which was a really interesting experience. One of the president's attaches, uh, who is essentially the brainchild for how they were dealing with Mitchell Khan, uh, I had lunch with him. You know, I, could, I knew he was wired and that everything I was saying was being recorded, so I spoke in great generalities about what I was filming. Um, to be honest, I was, I'm more scared of the Mexican government than I am of anyone else that I filmed. Because I knew, I knew the people that I was with, you know, the good guys and the bad guys. I knew them. I had relationships with them. But this sort of amorphous institution that oversaw everything, uh, that scared me a lot more. Um, there's one point that we received some information that they were uh, tracking our, my phone and my email um, and to sort of watch my back. Um, Unclear whether that was a threat or a, a warning. Unclear whether that was completely true. But that definitely changed how we interacted, how we communicated from then on. Um, that was half your question. Why did the cartel and the autodefenses let you in? Uh, people always ask, you know, it's a, I think it's the same common denominator, whether it's someone in the cartel or in the auto defenses or in my last film, you know, in a hospital, in an emergency room, whatever it is, I think it's, it's always the same common denominator, which is that they want their story to be told. You know, they want other people to understand what they're going through in the world that they live in. Um, and, you know, I think that's what drove a lot of these people into letting me tell their story. Go ahead. The microphone. Just a follow-up uh, question. In the case of Comitán Chiapas, I don't know if you followed with Comandante Marcos what happened in Chiapas when the um, uh, rebel group just took over control of some land and just declared it their own possession. I think the Mexican government was very uh, curious and very, very keen to get involved in this, most likely because they were pushed by the caciques, the landowners. And I'm wondering why, in your position, in your project, um, they seem to have looked at it from far away, just letting you go. Because if they had wanted you to stop, they would have stopped you. So I'm just wondering, uh, what is the uh, perception by the authorities, whereby, in the case of Chiapas, they let it happen, and there was a sort of political solution at the end. But in your case, they just let it go. And why would they? do this I, mean. I guess I'm sort of why would they why would the government continue to permit you me to, to follow film? a story yeah yeah I think you know um, I mean well what could they do arrest me I mean you know there's there's um, 
everyone around there knew what we were doing. You know, journalists all around Mexico knew what we were doing. It wasn't a secret what we were doing. We had a huge network of people. Every morning that we woke up, um, we'd call journalists all around Mexico and tell them what roads we were driving on, what towns we were going to, uh, in case we got kidnapped. Uh, we had a whole network of sort of people that we um, had, you know, contact with. Um, largely, you know, huge thanks to my local crew for that. And I think the the kickback, if the government tried to do anything, um, would have been enormous, obviously. Um, and the fact that we're from the states, uh, you know, I think there, that definitely helped protect us. Um, there's been dozens of journalists killed in Mexico. Dozens. Um, and none of them from the, from the states, all local journalists. And I think to some level we were protected by being American, um, which, you know, I'm grateful that I'm not in jail, but you know, I also feel bad and I feel horrible um, thinking about all the, the journalists that have risked their lives telling stories in Mexico that, you know, have much worse fates. I mean, there's, a, there's an article that was just written in, 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 one, in a newspaper in Mexico in which the journalist, her last paragraph, said, I, I don't understand how Heinemann could get the, the footage that he was able to get. I have many colleagues that are, that are dead for showing half of what he showed. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your um, stylistic approach to the cinematography of the film, because um, it is, you know, it has a very cinematic quality, which is kind of unusual for a documentary since you're running gun style and you kind of don't have the luxury of a narrative where you have a whole department able to light your scenes and you mentioned that you uh, use no lights aside from the meth cooking scene. So I'm just curious as how were you able to kind of give this really, really cinematic quality? Was a lot of that in the post-production of the film or was it a combination of um, the raw footage and you know some uh, choices you made in post-production? I'm just, if you could talk about your process a little bit, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, the aesthetics you know, were incredibly important to me. Um, the look of the film, the feel of the film. Uh, I wanted the, the film to sort of match the energy uh, of what we were seeing, what we were witnessing. And so, um, you know, I, I shot the film with a you know, really talented cinematographer, Matthew Porwall, uh, who's a, you know, also uh, co-produced the film with me. He's a you know, wonderful guy, and you know, together we created this palette and this look for the film. Um, he shot uh, pretty much all the interviews um, and a lot of the scenic footage and, and uh, you know, um, those we did light, we did light the interviews. Um, but for all the verite, um, you know, we shot uh, without, you know, any lights or anything. Obviously, I mean, how could you bring a light into any of those situations? Um, you know, and for a lot of this stuff, for a lot of the intimate footage, um, I, I was alone. You know, I wanted to, there's no way I could have filmed with other people around me. I, there's no way I could have been in a shootout or in the back of the car or in any of these situations if I didn't around me. So I wanted to be alone because I, I didn't want to have to worry about other people. It was enough to worry about myself. It was enough to worry about, you know, making sure the record button was on. Um, I wanted to, you know, very much focus on on that. And um, yeah, and the and as Kristen said, you know, the focusing on the craft of filmmaking often calmed me down in a lot of those situations. Someone 
interviewed me the other day and, <laughs> and sat down and said, um, I've been dying to ask you, you know, uh, what was it like to recreate all those scenes? You know, what was it like working with actors? Um, you know, the shootout that must have been, you know, it must have been crazy directing that scene with, with all those actors. And, and I said, I was like, I just, I was dumbfounded. Um, but, what? <laughs> Anybody else? I was wondering if the style of your documentary was influenced, if you were influenced by any documentary filmmakers or narrative filmmakers, like uh, if it influenced your style of editing and cinematography. I mean, there's there's so many filmmakers that I have so much respect for, Chris. I mean, there, there, there's a you know a core group of filmmakers that I really respect, that I really love, whose style that I have a ton of respect for, but. You know, I I didn't go to film school. Um, I didn't. I had no formal training. Um, I think a lot of sort of the what I see and what I um, how I shoot and how I direct is just instinctual. Um, and um, yeah, <laughs> <That's> I, <okay. laughs> I, I, I there's no I, there's no like real smart like brainchild behind you know what I'm trying to do I, I every scene every situation I try to um, figure out what looks what looks good to me and and you know f capture that scene um, as you know as well as I can uh, it's been argued that the US drug policy is indirectly responsible for a lot of the violence in this region has the process of making this film changed your political views or do you just try to stay out of that I was waiting for the policy question this is, this is a filmmaking discussion. I'm just kidding. Um, has, has making this film changed my view on U.S. policy? I, I really didn't make this film uh, to make a film about policy. There's many uh, people have made films on documentaries on the drug war, on failed drug policy. Uh, there are many articles and books, and that's not what I wanted to do. You know, I did not want to make a film with talking heads. I did not want to make a film with experts. I did not want to make a film talking to government officials. I wanted to make a film about what it's like to live under the terror of the cartel and the effects of, effects of that on everyday people and the response of everyday people rising up to fight back and the complications that come with that. Um, so, you know, that's a way of not answering your question. But I, I, I really, you know, I, I really did not sit out to make a policy film. Um, and so... I think what it did show, what the film did do to me was, was really the, the cyclical nature of this violence, the cyclical nature of this problem. The, as the auto defensus successfully pushed, put, you know, got rid of the cartel, got rid of the Knights Templar, um, doing the dirty work of the government, doing what the government had failed to do for many, many years, they um, created a power vacuum they created meth labs that weren't being cooked. They created uh, drugs that weren't being pushed northward. And so somebody needed to fill that void. And I think that's one of the sad realities that, I, you know, that we witness in the arc of this film is that this problem is, is quite cyclical. It's interesting. I, I often feel that we, we think we know uh, what we're interested in when we start making a film. But by the time it's finished, we find that we are making a film about something very different. Did you have that experience? Oh my God, I mean, I feel like every 
two weeks the film changed. But not yeah. the film itself, but the why you are making oh, it. Oh, for, yeah. The sort of the mystery of why you as a filmmaker have such a compulsion and what it is about. That's what I find as you get through the process of a film at the other end of it, you start to have different thoughts about. Maybe you're, you're right in the middle of it. He's experiencing it. I no, think. no, no. I, I, I think... I think my perception of, of the issue of, of, of my motivations, uh, they completely changed. Um, my view of um, vigilantism changed. You know, I, I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know um, what sort of how I shook out on this issue. And I think if you see the film, um, I think it becomes clear. Uh, what I think. <laughs> uh, go ahead. As I was watching the trailer and the clips, I was continually like, I would have totally believed you if this was a narrative film. It's stunning. And then at the end of the trailer, I saw that Catherine Bigelow was the executive producer. And that, that I mean, could you talk about working with her and what that brought to you in the film? So uh, Catherine saw the film uh, after Sundance, and you know, was really moved by the film. Uh, we were connected and and met a few times. Um, I'm a huge fan of her work. I'm a huge fan of her Locker and, and Zero Dark Thirty, and um, and sort of the truth that she brings to her her uh, the way she shoots and and and, ca and captures uh, stories, and and so. Uh, you know, through those conversations, we, we decided that to bring her on board as an executive producer to help sort of promote the film and get the film out there. And, you know, I'm very honored and, and humbled uh, that she's come on board to help, um, you know, get the film out there. So, What did she bring to it? And what, like, what specifically did you, like, learn from her? What, how did she, like, what kind of advice or feedback did she offer that helped you tweak the film? Like, those were a lot of just platitudes about, like, how much you like her. As a filmmaker, no, but uh, he, right. she came on board after the film was oh, completed. The film was completed. She, oh, yeah. she, totally she, she, she was not oh, involved okay, in the okay, editorial okay. process. She yeah. came gotcha. on board after the film was done, after the film premiered at Sundance, after the film was locked. So I, mean, I think what a lot of documentary filmmakers are experiencing is that there is a small audience for our work out in the world because of the perception around what documentaries are, and that a lot of times when a narrative filmmaker who is respected out in the world becomes associated with our films more people become interested in seeing them. Um, Soderbergh came on board yeah, for... Yeah, Soderbergh came on for Citizen Four. I mean, there are many different examples of this, and I think that we're in a, an amazing phase where people are star starting to value documentaries uh, in new ways and are coming to the theater more and watching them more online, um, but we still have a long way to go in terms of... Um, how much people value documentaries in relation to narrative films. Um, and part of what narrative directors often do is help us get it out to larger audiences, which I think is Catherine's role in this case. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, and I think aesthetically and, and as filmmakers, we you know very much see eye to eye in terms of how we make our films. I mean, I feel like I had a lot of friends after seeing Hurt Locker come up to me. I was just starting out as a, as a documentary filmmaker and saying, you know, hey, did you see that documentary, Hurt Locker? Uh, it, was a, it was an amazing documentary. I mean, I think so many people, I think the lines between narrative filmmaking and, and documentary filmmaking are you know, becoming also blurry. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of narrative filmmakers are trying to use documentary techniques uh, in their films. Right, 
Right, as evidenced by this beautiful uh, aerial shot that he has of the border, which is, you know, some, it's a tool out of a narrative film to see this aerial shot going along the border that we saw in the trailer. Yeah. Um, that you don't, you don't, you can't do as one person on the ground with a camera, right? I think I, I really encourage all of you to see the film because I think it is a deeply full and complex, uh, how long, how many minutes is it? Uh, 100 minutes. 100 minutes. And I don't think much more could be fit into it. It's going to leave you thinking for a long time. Please go see it when it opens and please share with your friends um, because I think it's a remarkable film and this is a remarkable filmmaker and let's give him some applause. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.